Good morning. Hello, hello. So good to see you. Who's excited about the new series of Doctor Who this evening? Yes, come on. There's a few Whovians. Like three of us. It's fine. It's all right. I haven't prepared a sermon about Doctor Who. <laughs> Not this time. One day. <laughs> That's the dream. Um, right. Sorry, I'll stop going about that. Right, we're, so we're, we're in the middle of a series, if you're just joining us or been away for the past few weeks, a middle of a series um, entitled Family Values, as you can see from the screen. And we've been looking at what it means um, together on Sunday mornings to be a part of the family of God. Because if you are um, a follower of Jesus here today, and I know many of you are, um, then you are a part of his family. Jesus said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Later on, um, the Apostle John wrote, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And so we've been exploring together um, on our Sunday mornings what this looks like. It was something that the early church had to kind of figure out for themselves as they were getting going. Um, As we've seen over the past three weeks, Paul, um, the Apostle Paul, had to write quite a bit into the early churches to help them figure out what it meant to be part of the family of God. The first week we looked at what he wrote to them um, in Romans 15, verse 7, where he says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Because the family of God is a place where anyone can be accepted. Jesus said, whoever, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And so we establish that God's family is a place where we are accepted and not rejected. The second week we looked at Paul's letter to Philemon, where in verse 11, verse 11, speaking of the former slave Onesimus, he says, formerly he was useless to you, But now he has become useful both to you and to me. And Paul wanted Philemon to see that God was a God of second chances. Jesus had turned Onesimus' life around. He'd been given new purpose and new meaning. And so Paul encourages Philemon to embrace him, not as a slave as he was before, but as a brother, as a member of the family of God. And so we learn that when it comes to God's family, we are useful and not useless. And then last week, we looked at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, a different letter again, where in chapter 4, he talks about how Jesus has given us apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers in order that we might be built up. And he writes in verse 16, as each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. And so we concluded that God's family is a place where we are formed, molded, shaped in the right way, and not forgotten. God doesn't forget his children. And if you missed any of those um, talks over the past few weeks, you can catch up with them um, online on our podcast section. Um, And I encourage you to do so if you have the time to do it. This morning, then, we're going to move on to a fourth value, a fourth value, which is this. When it comes to God's family, we are missional, not 
miserable. Missional, not miserable. Now, I haven't been a parent for as long as some of you guys here. I've only got seven years under my belt. Um, so I know I have much to learn from you guys. One of the things um, that I've noticed in my short tenure is that my kids are most miserable when they are bored, right? And I'm sure that's true for some of your children as well. There are a number of ways my kids like to express themselves when they're bored. Um, they like to complain, to moan. Oh, I'm so bored. There's nothing to do. And it doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> That's not mine, but I thought it was a good photo. Um, he's not mine, I should say. How rude. Um, it doesn't seem to matter that they have roughly 6,000 toys to their disposal. There's never anything to do. Um, they like to, to fight. That happens when they're bored. Daddy, he, he's annoying me. Is he, sweetie? What's he doing? He's looking at me. <laughs> oh, how terrible. How terrible. Um, unfortunately, these days, they tend to go straight for punching each other more than, than speaking to me. Um, the other thing they do when they're, they're, they're bored is they annoy me. Um, I've noticed a strange correlation recently. They both seem to reach peak boredom at the precise moment I lock the toilet door to use <laughs> the bathroom. It's strange, isn't it? Um, and then, of course, there's the old, the old classic of the long car journey, right? The other, the are we nearly there yet scenario. We have a modern version in our car because I often use my phone as a sat-nav. Um, and my son knows that the phone shows me how many miles are remaining. So, so we get this, uh, Daddy, how many miles to go? 136. And then two minutes later, Daddy, how many miles to go again? Still 136. But you said that last time. Yes, I know. We're in standstill traffic. It's like the, the slowest countdown ever. But, you know, I, I, I get it. I get it. He's bored because we're on our way to somewhere else, somewhere more exciting. You know, perhaps a day out or a, um, a weekend away. And he's, he's eager to start the fun. It makes sense to me. And sometimes um, I think we can treat our Christian lives a bit like that car journey. You know, we're on our way somewhere more exciting. We got saved a while ago and we know that heaven is our ultimate destination and it's going to be so good. You know, we're going to get to be with Jesus and there'll be no more pain and no more suffering. Um, but, you know, for now, we've just kind of got to put up with the journey, deal with the traffic jams, deal with the speed bumps along the road and just sort of wait, you know, maybe play on our phones or perhaps read a book or two, but essentially stick it out until the journey is over. And to me, that sounds kind of miserable, right? It's certainly not the life that Jesus has planned for those that follow him. Because I think Jesus wants us to be missional and not miserable. So I wonder um, if you've got your Bibles with you, whether you would turn with me to Luke um, chapter 10 this morning. Luke 10. I want to share with you um, a story from the Gospels today and just draw out some lessons as we read it. I want us to look at the kind of life that Jesus has planned for those who are a part of his family. 
I'm going to read um, from the very start of the chapter, uh, verse 1. <clears throat> this is what it says. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and don't greet anyone on the road. Let me just pause there for a minute. Before we continue, I want to just give you a little bit of context to this story because it says in verse 1, doesn't it, that um, after this, Jesus appointed 72 others. 72 others. Other than who? <clears throat> well, if we flick back to the previous chapter, we read at the start of chapter 9 that Jesus had already sent out his 12 disciples. You know those guys, right? In verse 9, Chapter 9, verse 1, it says that Jesus called the twelve together. He gave them power and authority to drive out demons and cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Jesus had given the twelve a mission, if you like, to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Actually, it was the same mission um, that Jesus was on. It was the same mission Jesus himself had been given by God. If you know um, your Bible well, you might remember at the start of his ministry, Jesus refers to the, the scroll of Isaiah when he talks about himself, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, and he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And up until this point, those that were following Jesus had seen him do this. And it had been, it had been kind of awesome. You know, in Luke 5, they, they see him heal a man with leprosy and give another man who'd been paralyzed the use of his legs back as well as absolving him from his sins. In Luke 7, they saw him heal a centurion servant just by talking. The servant was miles away at home. And then they saw him bring a widow's son back from the dead just because he noticed her crying. In Luke 8, when they were hanging out together at sea and it got a bit choppy, they saw him tell the wind and the waves just to calm down a bit, and they did. And then he went on to drive a demon out of a man who lived in a graveyard, heal a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, and to finish the afternoon off, raise a small girl to life. They were never bored when they were hanging out with Jesus. And aside from, you know, the miraculous stuff, they began to get a sense of what he was like. They began to understand what was important to him. They saw him eat and drink with disreputable people, sinners and prostitutes. He touched people that others wouldn't go near. And he talked about the kingdom of God all the time. He told them these amazing stories that illustrated incredible spiritual truths. He opened their eyes. He said outrageous things like, love your enemies. Don't judge others. And he stood up to the religious elitists. It was like, honestly, the most fun they'd ever had. And then, in chapter 9, he says to his disciples, off you go. Your turn. You know what I'm about now. You know the mission. Get out there. Go on. Proclaim the kingdom of God. 
heal the sick? And they were like, what? Is, it, is he talking to us? Peter's like, yeah, yeah, I think he might be, lads. And Jesus says, yes, yes, you 12. Off you go. Crack on. Let me know how you do. And so Jesus and the rest of his followers stand there and they just wave them off as they disappear. Now I imagine what happened at this point is that the rest of Jesus' followers just breathed a collective sigh of relief. Thank goodness we're not one of the 12. Whoa, dodged a bullet there. Can you imagine? Except that a few days later, Jesus turns around and says, Right, you lot. Yes, you 72. Yeah, all of you. Partner up. It's your turn. Off you go. Out on mission. We're told that he sends the 72, two by two, ahead of him into every town and place he's about to go. That's 36 different places that Jesus had in mind that he wanted to visit over the coming weeks. And so he sends his followers there to prepare the ground. Two two very quick observations about that first verse there. Firstly, Jesus didn't just choose the 12 to go out on mission. He also chose the 72. You know, sometimes I think we can get it into our head that Jesus is more interested in others than he is in us. The elites of the faith, if you like, the most charismatic or dynamic, the loudest amongst us, it often seems. Yes, I deliberately got louder there. But it's not true. Sure, Jesus had the 12 disciples, but honestly, I think it was because his time was short and there was only so much time he could commit to training others. But Jesus doesn't neglect the others that are following him. He gives them the same power and the same responsibility that he gave to the 12. He places the same expectations on them. He sends them as well. How does he choose them? How does he choose these 72 people? It doesn't actually say. I think the only thing we can read into this scripture this morning is that they were followers of Jesus. That's it. They were with him when he was looking for people to send out on a mission. And so if you're a committed follower of Jesus this morning, I want, to know that Jesus, I want you to know that Jesus is looking to send you on a mission as well. Regardless of whether you feel like you're part of the inner circle or not, Jesus wants to send you into the world to help people to get ready to meet him. Secondly, I love this, Jesus sends people out from his presence but he promises to meet them where they're going. Did you notice that? He doesn't abandon us on the mission field. When we step out in faith, he's right there with us. He calls us into mission, and at the point where we trust him enough to go, he promises to meet us there. He sends them ahead, but the journey is together. And then we come to verse 2, and he tells them the reason why they are going, the reason he's sending them out into the world. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What's this statement about? I think it's simply this. I think Jesus recognizes the needs of the world. He sees that people are lost. He sees that people are broken and people are hurting. You know, we're told in 
in Matthew's Gospel that when Jesus saw the crowds of people that came to him, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think he could see the state that the world was in. And more than that, he could see that people were needing rescue. They needed saving. And Jesus couldn't just idly stand by and leave people to their destruction. He was motivated by compassion, by love. He had his father's heart. He wanted the lost children to come home. On another occasion, Jesus said to his disciples, you've got a a saying. You have a saying, still four months till harvest, plenty of time, no hurry. But I tell you, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. The need is great. People need to know about me, about the kingdom of God. But the work is a few. I think what's really interesting about um, this passage here is that Jesus isn't talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. He's talking to those who are already following him. I don't think Jesus is saying the workers are few because not enough people believe in Jesus. I think he's saying the workers are few because those who do believe in him, who are following him, are not yet doing the work that needs to be done. And then he says something really interesting, doesn't he? He says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Pray, in other words. Pray. Pray to God. Pray that he would send out workers. Why does he ask them to pray for God to send out workers when Jesus was already sending them out? Well, I think the answer is this. I think Jesus wanted their motivation and their power to come not from themselves, but from God. You see, one of the things that starts to happen when we spend time in prayer is that we begin to understand God's heart for the world around us. His heart for the lost, for the broken, for the hurting. He begins to change us. He begins to soften us. He begins to move us away from selfish pursuits to kingdom pursuits, to open up our eyes to the world around us, the needs of others. There's a song by Hillsong United called Hosanna. And one of the verses says this. It says, heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. As I walk from earth into eternity. I think that's it. You know, I think Jesus' heart was breaking for the world around him. And so he says to his followers, pray. Get invested in this mission. Let God give you his heart for this world. And you know, the more, the more we get on our knees and we pray that God will reach the lost, the more he changes our hearts so that we ourselves get motivated to get out there and reach the lost. But there's also an assurance in this prayer, isn't there, that he asked them to pray. I think Jesus wanted his followers to know that before they go, ultimately, this is God's work. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He is the Lord of the harvest, and it's his field. When we step out in mission, we are about his work. We are engaging in the things that he wants us to engage in. 
After this, Jesus says, go. I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Lambs amongst wolves. What does it mean to be a lamb amongst wolves? They've got no, no fangs, no claws. Their bodies are small and feeble compared to the muscular frame of the wolves. Without protection, the wolves would swarm them and just tear them to pieces. It's starting to sound a little bit frightening, isn't it? Whoa, does Jesus want to see us destroyed? What's going on here? I don't think so. I see, as we saw last week, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. But what I think Jesus wants is for us to go not in our own strength as a wolf would. A wolf would go with its own tenacity, its own cunning, its own plans, its own tactics, its own power. You see, I think God doesn't want us to go that way. God wants us to go in his strength. Not to be reliant upon our own abilities, our own wisdom, our own power, but on his. To trust him when we take that step outside of our comfort zones. Later on, Paul would reflect in his letter to the Corinthians that we have this, this treasure, this message in a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It says we're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. In other words, his power is made perfect in our weakness. You know, Jesus was crucified as the, the Lamb of God. He was killed, wasn't he, as that sacrifice, and it looked like defeat. But actually, that sacrifice led to the rescue of the entire world. And the same power that conquered the grave lives in us. And so he continues. And he says, you know, guys, don't take stuff with you. You know, bags and purses or extra shoes or greet anyone on the road. And this, this seems a little bit strange, right? This seems a bit, a bit odd. Are we supposed to kind of walk out of here this morning with our, our heads down, not talking to anyone? Nope, nope, nope. I'm on a mission. I don't think so. I think what Jesus is saying here is that he wants us to remain focused on the mission in hand. Not to be distracted by material things or social niceties. You see, greeting someone in the first century was a little bit more complicated than it is today. It involved certain special handshakes, special kisses on the beard, if you were a man, um, prayers of gratitude and repentance for each other, a series of questions that you were supposed to ask one another concerning every area of life, family and friends and farm and business and animals and faith. And by the time all of that had been reciprocated, you could have used 30 or 40 minutes. If you were to meet 10 people on the road, you could lose five hours of your day. And I think what Jesus is saying to his followers is that there is an urgency to this work. There is a priority that needs to be placed on this mission. I think this verse gives us a great reminder not to become distracted from the mission that God has given us. It's very easy to live our lives observing all the social niceties, keeping up with the Joneses, idly fritting away our days as though we have all the time in the world. But actually, we're people on a mission. 
Imagine how boring James Bond would have been if he'd spent two hours just sort of wandering around chatting to folk and shopping for shoes. I wouldn't watch that film. I'm sure you wouldn't either. God has things that he wants us to be getting on with. An important mission. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this from God, who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. And through God, we're making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is our mission. This is what we've been called to, to bring people back into a relationship with God. And it's a responsibility that that we need to take seriously. So from these first, just from these first three verses at the beginning of Luke 10, we can see that Jesus calls us into mission. There are so many people that are desperate for God's love, desperate to know that they are forgiven, desperate to know that they can find peace, that they can find a hope for the future. We see that he calls us into prayer in order that we might gain our heart for mission. I wonder, um, I wonder what would happen if this morning I said, right, partner up and then just head out into every housing estate in Tamworth and um, tell them about the kingdom of God and, and heal the sick. I wonder what your response would be. Those of you that didn't find another church, um, I think might go to prayer first. Because mission drives us to prayer. When we take it seriously, when we realize what we're called to, it drives us to get on our knees and to pray. As I said last week, when, we need to, when we're in that place where we need to trust God beyond our own abilities, beyond our own strength and our own wisdom, that's when our maturity takes a leap. That's when we're forced into that place where we need to really start trusting God, where we really need to start taking our faith seriously. Because without him, whoo, it's all going to fall on its face. I know you're worried now that I'm going to tell you to partner up and, <laughs> and go after this. Wait and see. <laughs> and the other thing he says, he says, trust him, doesn't he? Don't go as a wolf amongst wolves. Don't go in your own might. But go as a lamb amongst wolves, and my power will be made perfect in your weakness. So aside from the, the no purse and the keeping idle chit-chat to a minimum, Jesus gives lots of other bits of advice in this story in verses 4 through 12. Um, I, I don't really want to kind of get into unpacking all of that um, this morning because I, I think you'll, you'll lose interest, but read it for yourselves um, in the week. But he encourages them to go in peace, to, to find others that will support the mission. He warns them not to stay in places where they're not welcome. But where I want to come to this morning is down in verse 17. I want to skip a few verses down because I think this is really, really key for us today. And in verse 17, we find that there's a bit of a, a time jump. Luke has shot forward a few days to tell us the conclusion of this story. 
Um, the 72, they've prayed their prayers, they've got on their knees, um, they found their, their partners and they've headed out to all the places that they were going to go out on mission. And now they're coming back and they're reporting to Jesus all that has happened whilst they've been away. And so it says in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. They returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, don't rejoice the Spirit submits to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then it says in verse 21, at that time, Jesus, full of joy. Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. I'm in love with this verse here. I'm in love with this image that we have of the disciples in this passage. You know, they'd been obedient. They'd gone off to the towns and villages, the places that needed to hear about Jesus. They'd told them about the kingdom of God. They'd prayed for the sick. They had trusted him. And as they'd done that, they'd saw incredible things. And now they're, they're running back to their Lord. They're coming back over the hills and, and can, Jesus can see them in the distance and they're singing and they're, they're laughing and they're talking to each other about what they've done, what they've seen. They're saying, you won't believe it. Oh my goodness. You know, I was praying for this, this one guy and, and, and he was paralyzed and we were just all praying for him. And then, and then his legs started working again and then he was like singing and praises to God and then the other one's like, no way, that's so cool. Listen, we were praying for this little girl and she was sick uh, and then she got better and then like a whole family came to believe in Jesus and, and then, then they were all happy and singing and this other guy's like, that's so cool. But listen, we were praying for this old guy and, and, and I think he had like a demon because he just started shaking and stuff as we were praying but then he was, he was happy and he said he can't wait to meet Jesus and it was just brilliant and they're just so full of it and they're having the best time and finally they get to Jesus they arrive and they say Lord God, even the demons submit to you in your name and the best thing I think about this story is Jesus reaction it doesn't say this, but I'm pretty confident as he listens to their stories, he is grinning from ear to ear. Sure, you know, he warns them not to get too hung up on the, on the demon thing. You know, he reminds them the important thing is that they found salvation. He says, your names are written in the book of life. That's, that's the important thing, lads. But then it says in verse 21 that Jesus was full of joy. Now, I might be... Um, wrong on this. But I can't think of another occasion in the Gospels where it says specifically that Jesus was full of joy. I'm not suggesting he was moody most of the time or anything. But I think it's interesting that it's here. It's in this context of Jesus hearing about the impact his followers were having in the world that he is overcome with joy. Isn't that beautiful? I think he hugged them. I think he laughed with them. I think perhaps they danced and sung a hymn of praise to God. I mean, he prays this prayer of thanks, doesn't he? 
He says, Father, thank you for using those with a simple trusting faith, a childlike faith. And you know, I bet they were never the same again. I bet they got back to Jesus and they said, Lord, when can we go again? Where can we go next? Who can we tell now? What amazing things can we see being done in your name in this place? Because we're so excited. We can't believe it, but God wants to use us as well. We thought we were just following you around, but actually God's using us as well. That's what I reckon happened. (laughs) Because it was exciting and it was fun. Sure, it was dangerous. And I bet not everybody they spoke to was interested. In fact, Jesus said that wouldn't be the case. But as they trusted God, they began to see things happening. They began to see lives change. They began to see people come to know Jesus for themselves. And it was joyous. It was so joyous. And I want you to know this morning that when you step out in faith and you tell somebody about Jesus, when you bring the kingdom of God into somebody's life, Jesus is laughing and smiling right there with you. As I was thinking about um, this message this week and, 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 and what I wanted to say, um, I was reminded of something that I'd forgotten about from my childhood. I have a terrible long-term memory. Um, and I, I don't know whether God just sort of put this back into my head um, or, 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 or what, but um, it, was, it was the first time that God gave me personally a mission. I'd forgotten about it completely. But I, it was when I, I came to faith when I was quite young. I was about nine or ten, something like that. Um, but I started to take my faith seriously when I got into my teenage um, years. And I'd done some outreach stuff with the church. I was involved with youth and that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I remember having this sense that God wanted me to do something at my school, at my high school. And what uh, translated to in my head was to start a, a Christian union, a place for other believers to meet and to pray together and talk about faith and so on. And back then, um, I wasn't like I am now. I was timid and shy and awkward and spotty and thin. Um, <laughs> I had zero self-confidence and even lower self-esteem. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad for me. That's, that's just who I was. I was a spotty, lanky mess, like a lot of teenagers. Um, but I just remember feeling so strongly that God wanted me to do this. And so I had to be brave I spoke to the teachers. I, I managed to find a classroom that we could use. And then, whoo, then I made posters and stuck them up around the school. I had to put my faith on display for people to see. Now, if ever there was a place where you truly felt like a lamb amongst the wolves, it's high school, right? Because if you stick out in any sort of way, if you show yourself to be different, oh, man, people go for you. It's rough, I'm telling you. Please pray for our teenagers. But somehow I did it. And you know, I don't think there was ever more than a handful of people that met together. And I don't think we ran it for more than a couple of terms. It was hardly like Billy Graham level evangelism or anything. But boy, was it exciting. It pushed me in ways I hadn't been pushed before. I had to pray harder than I'd ever prayed before. And what was amazing was the sense that God was using me in that place. My faith became real. (laughs) It became exciting. 
And you know, I've never looked back. I've done outreach programs and summer missions and kids clubs and Christian unions and prayer groups. And I've seen people respond to God in many different ways. And it's thrilling. It just fills me with joy. I'm never bored when I'm stepping out in faith for the Lord. I wrote that and I thought, what an incredibly cheesy thing to say. But it's true. I'm never bored when I'm stepping out in faith for the Lord. You see, being a part of God's family, it's not just about gathering with other believers and singing a few songs and saying some nice prayers and just kind of waiting for God to take us home for all this to be over. It's about going on adventures together. It's about achieving amazing things for God's kingdom. If you're looking at your Christian life this morning and thinking, man, this is boring, I've got news for you. You're doing it wrong. God's family is a family that cares passionately about the world around them. They have their father's heart for the lost. They know that they are called to get out there and make a difference. You know, the harvest is plentiful. The need is real. People are desperate. They're desperate, but the work is a few. So I want us to remember this morning that when it comes to God's family, we are missional and not miserable. I wonder if the band would come and join me. Should we just pray together? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you don't call us into this life to wait, to sit around, to be bored and miserable. But God, you call us into this life because you have work for us to do. God, there is a mission field on our doorstep. There are people that we know, people that we work with, people in our family, people that we love and care about that are desperate. God, that need to know about your love. And Father, we know that that's a scary thing to step out in faith. We know that's a tough thing. We know it makes us uncomfortable when we think about putting our faith on show, on the line, about stepping up and speaking up for you. We know how hard that is. But God, we also know that we can trust you. And we know that you promise to meet us on the mission field. You don't send us out on our own, but we go in your strength, in your wisdom, in your power. Father, I want this to be a place where we come back together, where we gather on a weekend and we share stories of the amazing things that you have done in our lives because we have been bold in speaking up for you. We think of those disciples coming excitedly back to Jesus and just being blown away by the work that you have done through them. God, that's what I want for myself. That's what I want for this church, God, that we would just see incredible things as we step out in faith for you. In Jesus' name, amen.